On today's show, an examination of the weekend's football games and the marginal difference between winning and losing. Before we get there, I want to give you one reason why gambling should be legal everywhere. Tonight, Monday Night Football, Raiders, Chargers, we are taking over 51 and a half points in the game. And I'm doing so for a lot of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, Justin Herbert is quickly ascending up the ranks of my favorite players to watch in the NFL. A cannon arm, willingness to make any throw, leading this incredible Chargers offense. I'm into it. On the other side of the field, Derek Carr, somehow also becoming, becoming one of the funnest players to watch in the NFL, which is a very strange thing because now he's chucking bombs all over the yard. He's got Brian Edwards down here and Henry Ruggs over here and Darren Waller over here, and he's avoiding the constant checkdowns that plagued him in the past. What kind of bizarre world are we living in where Derek Carr is one of the funnest quarterbacks to watch in the NFL? At the very least, we possibly could have a redo of the last time the Raiders were on Monday Night Football. Opener, Baltimore Ravens. It featured one of my favorite moments of the entire season, when John Gruden could not decide whether the field goal unit or the offense should be on the field in overtime, and he didn't have a timeout. And so they were going around one another like the two clown cars, and all that was missing was the music, you know. It was amazing. I think that all of this is setting up for a great night where points are going to be scored, and we have our reason why gambling should be legal everywhere, because Monday night cannot be properly celebrated without throwing down money on two of the funnest quarterbacks in the NFL. And now, Sports with Chris Rawl. Welcome to Monday on the Margins, where we talk about the weekend in football and the tiny little slivers of things that decide who wins and who loses these games. It's insanity. I cannot say it enough, but I will do it every single Monday until football is over. Now, those of you who listen to this show know that the weekend truly starts on Thursday. Normal people, they believe it's Friday, not here. When football starts going, that's when the weekend begins. And that's Thursday night because we always have a garbage NFL game and we have a very strange college game. And the pairing of those two things really kicks off a weekend in style. Now, a tone was set, a very specific tone, for this weekend in football. Because that collegiate game on Thursday night was the Miami Hurricanes hosting the Virginia Cavaliers. And it was a bizarre game. There was all sorts of weird stuff going on throughout the course of it, including one of the weirdest touchdown catches you'll ever see from Virginia, where the ball hits off a defender and another one, and then a receiver, and then his back, and then his arm, and he's lying on the ground, and he pops it up. And he catches it as Miami is celebrating the incompletion. It's just weird stuff, okay? But it comes down to the final play of the game. Miami is trailing by two. They have a 33-yard field goal to win. Chip shot, I think most people would call it that. And what happens? Goes straight at the field goal post. It drills it. Doink. In or out. This one's out. So Virginia wins by two. They celebrate. They're six-point underdogs. Great. And a tone is set. The field goal doink right? It's strange in a sport that is called football that feet don't really play a role and we never talk about them because why would they? And yet time and again, each of these games come down to the actual foot of a kicker who plays virtually no snaps throughout the course of the game. And whether it goes in or out, we have these great 
declarations about, oh, this quarterback is now good or this quarterback is now bad. This is what this stuff is, okay? It segues nicely into the weekend of football. The field goal doinks, sets a tone. We're also watching the Bengals and the Jaguars. That's weird in its own right, but I won't get into that. The field goal doink segues into the weekend in college and in NFL. College, there's all sorts of weird stuff going on. Uh, You know, an ACC field goal doink, it sets the tone for Clemson squeaking out a win against Boston College. They're kicking field goals from their own one-yard line. What has happened with Dabble Sweeney in that program? I don't know. It's ACC football. It's just a total garbage conference. I can't fully determine how they're this bad. But that's where they're at right now. Uh, That segues nicely into a conference that's actually good at football, the SEC. But there's weird results happening there, including Kentucky upsetting a top 10 Florida team, despite the fact that Kentucky only gains 224 yards. The swing play in that game, when we're talking margins, it's a blocked field goal that pops up like a punt, and Kentucky catches it and weaves all through Florida's field goal unit, scores a touchdown, takes them from being behind by three to up by four in the second half. They add on to that. They win the game. This is the kind of stuff that decides games, okay? Margins, field goal doinks, field goal returns, kicking field goals from the one possibly. Who knows? There's a play that happened this weekend that a lot of you probably don't know about, but it's a perfect encapsulation of everything that I love about football in this subject. The marginal difference between winning and losing, outright, against the spread, whatever. Troy and South Carolina are playing Saturday afternoon. I have a bet on Troy plus seven, so I'm watching it. But it's at a time where there's a lot of stuff going on. Oregon and Stanford, as I'm going to get into, probably the game of the day. Uh, Alabama and Ole Miss, the game of the, one of the games of the day coming in, though it didn't turn out to be that way. And yet, somehow, in the fourth quarter, I'm glued to Troy, South Carolina. Because Troy is down six, just inside the number. They're driving. Maybe they can get an upset. What's going to happen? Their quarterback drops back to pass. He's hit. The ball is now out. South Carolina, they're bumbling it. They're grabbing it. Oh, a guy grabbed it. Now he's getting tackled. Oh, wait. Now the ball's out from him. Was it stripped? Was he down? We don't know. Now South Carolina's running off. They've scored a touchdown. Everybody's celebrating. I'm watching it going, oh, that's just a perfect way to lose my bet. You can't even write a script like this. And then we're watching the replay. So now I'm having to turn the sound on to this game because things are getting very, very, very interesting when it comes to examination of the margins. Because there are three things now under review within this play. First and foremost, was it a fumble? Was the quarterback's hand going forward? Oh, it's close. Let's decide. I don't know. There's some old guy in a box determining whether or not it went forward or not. That's the first thing. Second thing, South Carolina recovers it and they're running but they're getting tackled. Is their knee down before the ball is stripped out of the defender, who now is the offensive player, as he's running? Third, and most importantly, if the first two things are true, then we have to determine whether or not the third thing is true, which is the South Carolina, a new South Carolina defender, scooping up the ball and running it with no one around him. The crowd's going crazy because it's in South Carolina, and he's running it to the end zone, and it's going to be the only time he'll score a touchdown in his whole career because he plays defense, and what a happy time. And now, on replay, it looks like he leaves the ball a half yard short of the goal line because he's so excited. And not only does he let go of the ball a half yard short of the goal line, but he does so with momentum moving into the end zone. Which means instead of leaving the ball sitting there on the field, where it would be blown dead and South Carolina could retain possession if it was in the field of play, he throws the ball forward and it bounces and it bounces and it bounces and it goes through the end zone 
which in turn, because the first part, yes, it was a fumble that was held up on review. And the second part, yes, that was also a fumble held up on review. The third part is now South Carolina got a touchdown that was not a touchdown because their defensive player couldn't hold the ball across the goal line, fumbled it through the end zone, and now it's Troy Ball touchback on the 20. This is the kind of stuff that we bet on. This is the kind of stuff that we root for in outrights. It seems like it's every other week that a player forgets to take the ball across the goal line. Literally the most basic of functions when it comes to how to win a game. Well, in order to win, you the ball must break the plane of the end zone. I hate that I have to describe this on air to everybody, but that's how it works. And yet every other week, somebody forgets to do it, whether it's at the NFL level like Deshaun Jackson famously did, or whether it's at the collegiate level. Like it happens all the time. This is the kind of stuff that decides bets and who wins and who loses, okay? So college football through a month, actually a month and change now. We're into October. It has been chaotic everywhere except for at the very top. I come across this from Chris Vanini of The Athletic. 25 ranked losses through four weeks were the most in the history of the AP poll since 1936. Nine more ranked teams lost on Saturday. End quote from him. And this is matched up with uh, a very entertaining viewing product. Except for at the very, very top, as I'll get into. But nine more ranked teams go down on Saturday in a season that has already had more ranked AP teams lose than ever. And the game that I want to really circle in onto for the examination of the margins, is the Oregon-Stanford game that I mentioned earlier. Stanford, they're hosting Oregon. Oregon, the number three ranked team in the AP poll. Stanford's an eight-point dog. Goes into overtime. Stanford wins by touchdown. Biggest upset of the weekend. Now, I am just endlessly fascinated when you watch the game closely, how you can always find 15 to 20 plays in the last three minutes of regulation and overtime if it goes there, that you go, I think if you just change that one play, the other team probably wins. You start with Oregon up by seven, possessing the ball in Stanford territory. They have a first down. There's just over two minutes to go. Stanford has their timeout, so they obviously can't take knees. But if you pause it at that moment in time, you go, it's it's just pretty much a lock that Oregon is going to win this game. It's not a lock lock, but it's pretty much a lock. An Oregon team that had dominated the second half, just physically manhandled Stanford along the offensive front, ran the ball right down their throats. They have the ball. They just pretty much need to get a first down. You go, this team has ran it at will in this half. I feel comfortable saying that it's going to happen. I, as a person who bet Stanford plus eight, am thinking I'm going to have to sweat out this cover which is weird because in the first half, Stanford dominated. They're up by 10. They have this inspired goal line stand at the end of the first half that I thought was going to be a big swing for the outright because Oregon has the ball first and goal right at the end of the half. They're trying to score a touchdown to cut it from 17-7 to 17-14 and Stanford gets a stop and then another, then another. Then they stone them on fourth down and there's shades of the Cincinnati-Jacksonville first half from Thursday night when the Bengals have an inspired fourth down goal line stand at the end of that half to 
stay down by 14 and take it into the half. And then they roar out in the second half and come back and win outright. That's what I'm seeing in my mind. I go, Stanford, oh man, this could be the upset. And instead, the Ducks come out in the second half. They overwhelm them. Run, run, run. They're up seven. Yeah, you're just, I mean, the game is essentially, it's over, right? And then there's a weird series of events. Oregon, they're taking false starts. Stanford ends up getting a stop. They get the ball back, but I don't have a lot of high hopes. Stanford, not known for just an explosive offense that's able to drive down the field in a two-minute drill. And yet on what turns out to be a game-tying drive, we have an incredible examination of the margins. There's a targeting call on Kayvon Thibodeau, best player on Oregon, that may or may not have been targeting. I still don't know. Refs determine it was upheld on review. He is now not only out for that drive, he has not only given a first down to Stanford on that play, he is now out for the first half of their next game against the California Golden Bears. This stuff all ties in together. So on this play, Tanner McGee is injured. Quarterback for Stanford. So now they're bringing in their backup. Oh boy. He runs one play, literally runs. <laughs> it's a two-minute drill. I think in his defense, a little bit of a chicken with the head cut off scenario. Your mind's running a million miles a minute. He catches it, or he takes the snap and just looks around and doesn't know what to do. And he runs and he falls down. <laughs> not, not how you run a two-minute drill, okay? So Tanner McGee, who was injured, is now maybe not injured, but at least he's not going to just run and fall down. So they say, you got to get back in there. So he comes back in after one play. Now there's more stuff. There's a roughing the passer call that may or may not have been roughing the passer. Gives Stanford another first down. There, they get down. And there's one play left. They need to score a touchdown. They throw it. Oh, incomplete. No, no good. Oh, wait. Flag out on the field. There's a pass interference call that may or may not have been pass interference. If you watched the whole game, you would say, by the standards that this referee and crew set in this game, it is most definitely not a pass interference because they didn't call that all game. And on the most important play of the game, they chose to call it. So now there's an untimed down from the one-yard line. Stanford needing a touchdown. They decide to run a fade route. The least efficient Worst possible play you could ever run that has such an inferior chance of converting compared to any other play in your playbook that no one knows why it ever happens. And Stanford completes it. Touchdown, left corner of the end zone. Kick the extra point. Going into overtime. In overtime, Stanford gets the ball first. It's third and 11. It doesn't look like they're going to get it. Great pass from McGee on a slant. Receiver breaks some tackles, runs in. Touchdown. Oregon gets the ball. They need a touchdown to tie, obviously. Oh, great news. Targeting on Stanford. It's going to give them an easy first down. That goes to review. And for whatever reason, they determine, I don't think that one was targeting. There's not a lot of separation between anything Kayvon Thibodeau did and what Stanford did. The refs lean that way. I was happy because I had Stanford plus eight and I want to be upset. If you're examining what actually decides an outcome, it's stuff like this. Kind of weird. So they reverse the targeting call. And Oregon doesn't get a first down. Stoned on fourth down. Game, set, match. Oregon, upset, number three ranked team in the AP poll. Stanford, a team that looked absolutely lifeless week one against Kansas State, now has stomped on USC and has beaten the Oregon Ducks at home in front of a half-empty stadium at Palo Alto. Stuff's insane. Now, this is an interesting game for a lot of reasons. And one of them is it's... Proof, continual proof that the hardest part of being a contender is not beating the best team on your schedule. 
It's not getting juiced up and possessing enough talent or, or a game plan for that specific day to beat a really good team, which Oregon did when they went into the horseshoe and beat Ohio State. The hardest part of being a contender is getting up for every game. This is something that I really love beating the drum for because it's why football is so cool. And it's why it's always a moot point when we're three weeks into the season and we're going, oh, if this team will just win out now, then they'll be in the playoff. And I always like to laugh at it and go, well, yeah, that's the point. Nobody ever wins out except for Alabama. (laughs) That's it. That's the hardest part of football. It's not getting up for the one game, you know. Purdue can upset Ohio State. Iowa can upset Ohio State, as both teams have done in the past. The hardest part is showing up every single week in a sport that is built upon physicality and emotion. And especially when you yourself become a contender, you're getting the other team's best shot every single week. And you got to match that. This is where Alabama separates from the pack. As I was talking about on one of last week's show, and there's a stat that Alabama has beaten 100 consecutive unranked teams which doesn't sound that cool. But the more that you follow the sport, the more you realize that is an incredible accomplishment because these are the teams that usually sooner rather than later will tear down a contender. It's part of what makes the sport so cool. So Stanford beating Oregon, you don't really predict it going in, but when it happens, you go, yeah, this stuff always happens. You look at Oregon's schedule after the Ohio State win and you can't pick out this is a for sure loss and they should be favored in all these games, but that's not how this stuff works. Football's a crazy sport. It's built on physicality and emotion. Stanford brought that on Saturday, and the Ducks brought it for the second half, and ultimately that wasn't enough, and that's why they now have a loss, and Stanford is celebrating this great upset win. Now, I bring this up for a specific reason, because it ties nicely into one of the games of the day, Cincinnati against Notre Dame. Cincinnati, two-point favorites, going into South Bend, Biggest game in program history for this non-Power 5 team trying to break through the ceiling and insert themselves into the playoff discussion. Cincinnati, they win 24-13. Now, this game is less an examination of the weird stuff that happens on the margins and more an examination of when you need a play, who are you going to turn to? Cincinnati is dominating the game. They're up 17-0. If anything, you can say that the margins of this game allowed Notre Dame to just stay afloat because Cincinnati could not kick a field goal. They kept driving down the field and having field goal after field goal and their kicker for the life of him just couldn't kick it through the uprights. So they're leaving the door open. And Notre Dame, they make a game of it. 17-0 is now 17-13 in the fourth quarter. Cincinnati's getting the ball back, eight minutes or so left. What's going to happen? Who is going to step up and make a play? Uh, In this game, the play that I will not forget is Desmond Ritter, their quarterback on third down. They're up four. The crowd's going crazy. They can feel this uh, this comeback. It's here and all we need is a stop and Notre Dame is going to drive down. And on third down, he throws just a picture perfect throw right out of the playbook of Aaron Rodgers or Josh Allen or Patrick Holmes, any of these great quarterbacks. 30 yards downfield on a rope right over the defender's shoulder, right into his receiver's hands in stride. Huge explosive play. Sets up a Desmond Ritter touchdown run a couple plays later. That's the margin. Go from 17-13 to 24-13 with five minutes to go. That's the margin. Sometimes it's as simple as just, we need an incredible play from one of our best players. Cincinnati turns to Desmond Ritter. That's it. So now Cincinnati has 
the win that they can hang their hat on. They need to pray that Notre Dame wins out, all that kind of stuff. I want Cincinnati to be in the playoff discussion. I would love if they made the playoff, all that kind of stuff. However, I've heard a lot of people talking coming out of this game. All right, sweet. Now, I mean, Cincinnati has beat Notre Dame at Notre Dame. Now all they have to do is just win out against a lot of teams they're going to be favored against. And I hear that and the alarm bells start ringing because I go, that's not how this sport works. It's not as simple as just saying, yeah, just went out. Easy. Just go into the AAC, a conference that has been very competitive and the best non-Power 5 conference for the last handful of years and just went out. Just go beat SMU and Memphis and UCF and Houston, a lot of other teams that on any given day can give you problems and especially are going to be juiced up for when they play Cincinnati because Cincinnati is going to come in with hopes and dreams of a national title or a playoff berth. And yet they haven't even played AAC games and all these other teams are going to go, all right, we'll not only spoil your hopes and dreams, but we're going to take your spot in the conference title game or we're going to win this conference and we're going to prove we're better than you. That's the hardest part. So much like Oregon fell victim to it last week, uh, the hardest part of the season for Cincy still awaits, in my opinion. It's not that Notre Dame game. You need that in order to be inserted into the discussion. But the hardest part is going to be every single week taking these teams' best shots, teams that know you, teams that play against you every year, and scheme against you and understand your scheme. Now you're going to have to go and run the table through them. Sets up a lot of interesting games for Cincinnati moving forward. Now, those two games are really nice examinations of the margins. Tiny little differences between winning and losing. And I mentioned that the sport of college football has been really chaotic through the first month and change, except for at the top. And I want to examine the two teams that reside there. Because I set up this weekend and I said, Georgia and Alabama, we're going to get pretty good tests for both of those teams. It's going to be a pretty good indicator of what what we have in both of these squads, on on both sides actually, whether from Ole Miss or Arkansas or Georgia or Alabama. And and we have pretty, uh, pretty good data points for the Georgia Bulldogs and for the Alabama Crimson Tide. Because sometimes the margins don't matter if you are that good. Georgia, they swamp Arkansas, 37-0. Alabama, they swamp Ole Miss, 42-21. Not that close. Ole Miss is scoring garbage time to make that score that. Alabama takes their foot off the gas in the second half as Alabama does. It could have been 60-10. Now, while the rest of the sport is just swept up into this whirlwind and everybody's getting upset and taken down to the wire, Alabama and Georgia currently are kind of residing outside of that. They seem like they're just so much better than the rest of the nation. They seem like they're on a collision course for a matchup in the SEC title game and then an inevitable rematch in the national title game. That's just, just, uh, I always say college football is never this simple, but it seems so simple this year. Right at the very top. That's it. That's the only place. It seems like they both will win all their games and they will play in the SEC title game and one will win and then they will be pitted against different teams in the first round of the playoff and then they will both win and then they will rematch in the national title game. I hope I'm wrong. It'd be cool if I was wrong. It seems like it's that simple. The Georgia defense that just shut down Arkansas. 
Arkansas, who's been a great team so far. The Georgia first-team defense has not allowed a touchdown yet this year. That's all you need to know about them. They started Stetson Bennett at quarterback, their backup, because JT Daniels is not yet ready to go. They just said, it eh, doesn't really matter. We're going to run on 22 of our first 26 offensive plays, and Arkansas will not be able to stop us. They didn't. It's just, it was a display of physical dominance that is usually reserved for Alabama. When they say, we have recruited so much better than you. You, a top 10 team, Arkansas, who is a really good football team. We've recruited so much better than you. We can just line up and beat you. We'll run the most basic of things, and it doesn't matter because we trust our entire roster is so loaded with talent that we'll just physically manhandle you. That's what Georgia did. That's what Alabama did against Ole Miss. They said, eh, this run and gun stuff, it's cool. Matt Corral, you're great. Lane Kiffin, you're great, but... We're just going to come out and manhandle you. That's how this is going to work. So these two teams exist outside the sphere of everyone else. Where the margins have mattered greatly everywhere else. And on Saturday, for these two teams, against two top 10 teams, margins don't matter. Just too dominant. I come across this from Bill Conley of ESPN, and he's talking about, yeah, Alabama and Georgia, they haven't trailed this season, which... Yeah, that's very impressive in its own right. But even more impressive is neither team has attempted 50 total snaps on offense while tied this year. Georgia has run 49 offensive snaps in a tie game. And Bama has ran 39 in a tie game. They just seem far and above everyone else in the nation. We'll see if that's true moving forward. Could not be, but... I'm heavily leaning into that being the case. Now, we move on to Sunday in a sport that it doesn't matter how good or how bad you are. The margins always matter. The NFL. It's why it is the best sport. On any given day, any of these teams can beat any other team. And at the very least, the vast majority of these games are close. There's one exception. The Bills stomping on the Texans. We won't even talk about that because that was crazy. But every other game, it's just... It's insanity. Who's going to step up and make a play? What ref is going to make a decision? What coach is going to go for it on fourth or not? And ultimately, what kicker is going to doink and what kicker is not? Titans and Jets. They play a really, really interesting, fun game on Sunday. I did not expect it. I had to go back and watch it because I'm interested in Zach Wilson. The game was strangely thrilling. The Jets, as six-point underdogs, end up winning 27-24 in overtime. The tone was set on Thursday where football games are going to be decided by the foot. So it's kind of fitting, you know, that this game comes down to a Randy Bullock field goal in overtime for the tie. (laughs) Not for the win. The Titans are playing for the tie because it's the Titans. I don't know what's going on. He ends up missing a 49-yarder. So the Jets, they win. Great story. Zach Wilson, first win of his career. Exciting for him. All this kind of stuff. There's all sorts of margin plays that decide this game. Much like the Oregon-Stanford game, I go back and I'm watching it and I go, that is a pretty crazy swing play. Oh, that is two. Oh, that is, oh my, that is two. Just down the list, down the list. There's one very interesting crossroads moment that will not ever be talked about again because why would you? Ty Johnson, tailback for the Jets. He's returning kicks for him. The Titans storm back. They take a seven-point lead in the fourth quarter. They kick the ball off. Ty Johnson catches it. He's returning it. He gets hammered. The ball pops out. It's up in the air. 
Fumble luck is exactly that. It's luck. It Over the course of time, it's a 50-50 proposition who recovers and who does not. Forcing fumbles, that is skill. And you can control that more times than not. But recovering, it's just whoever gets it, gets it. So they scramble around. Both sides have equal chance to grab it. Who comes out of the pile? The Jets. Whew. Take a deep breath. Swipe your head. Okay, we still have a chance. We're down seven. Very first play, Zach Wilson throws a bomb downfield. Now we're in business. A couple plays later, he hits, I believe, Jamison Crowder on an out route. Touchdown. Jets, they're tied again. Here we go. The second half and overtime of this game, it was a really great examination of the talented rookie quarterback experience. And I love when I listen and read coverage of individual performance. I love reading stuff after wins and losses because it's usually framed by that, how that reflects on the individual. The second half and overtime for Zach Wilson, it was everything under the sun depending on how you want to examine it. I mean, there were incredible throws. And I mean, incredible. The touchdown pass in the second half to Corey Davis, when it's a broken down play and he motions Davis to go long and he throws it 50 yards downfield on the run, right into his arms, uh, just an incredible throw. He has two different throws in the second half and overtime to Keelan Cole, one in regulation. The second one in overtime on a third and two out route that they have to have or they're going to be punting. And he throws it on a dime on the opposite corner, running out of bounds over the defender's shoulder like an incredible throw. I mean, Rodgers, Mahomes, Josh Allen-style throw, much like Desmond Ritter on Saturday. And yet, you know, in this same half, he has Corey Davis on a wide open by NFL standards out route to seal the game on a third and 10, just airmails it, doesn't even come close to hitting him. In overtime, first and goal, he has Ryan Griffin, In the flat, he's wide open, and Zach Wilson kind of panics and throws it at his feet, incomplete, on a play that probably ends the game if he just throws it into his chest because he runs in for a touchdown and we don't even have to sweat a Randy Bullock field goal. They run a bootleg on third and goal from the one. A touchdown wins it again in overtime that he's ran down four yards behind the line of scrimmage. I'm not sure what the play call was. It was bizarre, all that kind of stuff. So there's everything there. There's all the talent that you expect from a number two overall pick. There's some of the the bad plays that you expect from a rookie quarterback who's not really on a great team and is learning on the fly. You can pick and choose what you want to take from the game. And ultimately, how I think this week is going to be framed when it comes to coverage of Zach Wilson, it's a clutch win. Uh, He played awesome. He made so many good plays in that second half after a first half that was just nothing. Nothing at all. And because Randy Bullock misses that field goal, you have the clutch win marked in the column. It's another of those stats, as I always talk about on these Monday reviews, when we're talking about the clutchness of quarterbacks and their win-loss record in close games and, and how they performed under duress in these tight situations. This is how, this is what this stuff comes to. He made... The best, one of the best throws you'll see all week to Keelan Cole on that overtime drive. He missed a wide open Ryan Griffin in overtime. Is it clutch or is it not? Or is it just somewhere in between? Is he clutch because Randy Bullock misses a 49-yard field goal? Or, or was he just clutch because he'd already made a lot of high-level throws before that? Would he be less clutch if Ryan Tannehill had hit somebody on Tennessee 
and they'd scored a touchdown on their possession in overtime? I don't know. That's, well, actually, I do know. No, the performance is already there, but how it is covered, it skews heavily towards whether or not the team won or lost the game. So the Packers and the Steelers also play on Sunday. Not a particularly close game, but there's a play that I would like to concentrate on because I think it is interesting to talk about for the purposes of today's show. Packers, they win 27-17. They're seven-point favorites, so they cover. They win outright. Again, not particularly close in the second half. Packers are up 27-10. They just kind of take their foot off the gas, and they slug their way through the rest of the game. However, at the end of the first half, when you're talking about gambling and when you're talking about what it means for the second half, for the outright, Packers are lining up to kick a field goal right near the end of it. They're already up 14-10. Field goal obviously puts them up 17-10. They're covering the first half number. And Joe Hayden and Minka Fitzpatrick run in. Oh no, blocked field goal. Return. Minka Fitzpatrick scoops it up, runs it all the way back for a touchdown. Looks like a crazy swing play. And I'm going, oh no, is it going to be one of these games? Because Green Bay had pretty much dominated the first half after Pittsburgh's first drive. And instead, it looks like it's going to be 17-14 Steelers at the half. An incredible bad beat if you would have bet Green Bay first half. And also setting up a second half that you know Green Bay is going to be in for a slog of a game. Referee throws a flag. Offsides. Retry. Green Bay kicks a field goal. 17-10 going in the half. We go to the replay and they're showing it. And it looks like Joe Hayden and Minka Fitzpatrick both just time the snap perfectly. And they start moving at the exact moment that the ball is being snapped. This comes from a Green Bay fan who does not want that play to be called, obviously. And they're showing it more. And the more I watch it, I'm going, uh, Pittsburgh probably was screwed out of that. And we'll forget about it because Green Bay wins the game. And honestly, the thing that I'll probably most remember from the game is Ben Roethlisberger just being one of the worst quarterbacks in the league. It's one of the worst performances that you could possibly see. He's overthrowing and duffing into the ground. Wide open receiver after wide open receiver. It's not like... Pittsburgh's receivers were not able to create separation. They were easily, especially in a game that Kevin King was not playing. Jair Alexander ends up getting injured. So now they're down their top two corners and it seemed like Pittsburgh's just running open and Ben Roethlisberger is just throwing it. Who knows where? Pittsburgh's doing the weirdest stuff on fourth down for the second straight week after their Bengals lost last week. They have a fourth and four in the second half that... Roethlisberger takes a snap and checks down to Najee Harris right next to him as soon as he catches the ball with three defenders waiting in the flat who tackle him two yards short of the line of scrimmage, much less the first down to gain marker, six yards beyond that. They have another fourth down in the second half where they run Juju Smith-Schuster on a crossing route. It's about fourth and five, and he runs the crossing route five yards short of the marker, and he's covered clearly with a dude right on his hip. Roethlisberger, to his credit, it's one of the throws where he hits a receiver, but he hits him and he's tackled five yards short of the marker. It's just bizarre stuff. That's what I'm going to remember most is just this Pittsburgh offense that is abysmal and quarterbacked by a dude who just, it's kind of hard to watch somebody who used to be that good be this bad, but that's where we're at with Big Ben. And yet if you rewind and you want to talk about margins, it's interesting to think about what this game could have been from an outright perspective, if it's 17, 14 Steelers at the half, this stuff is, this stuff is, it's always decided by strange things. A ref sees something that maybe was or was not there. 
And that shapes the outcome of a game drastically. So I'll close out with one game. Because if you believe in the circular nature of the universe, this weekend, it's really a really clear window into that. We start with a field goal doink on a Thursday night. We end with a field goal doink on a Sunday night. It's perfect. It's perfect circular stuff, man. I can't get enough of it. The Patriots and the Buccaneers play Sunday night. Tom coming back to Tampa. Everybody's going crazy. Or Tom's coming back to New England with Tampa. Everybody's crying and booing and cheering, all this kind of stuff. Okay. Tampa ends up winning 19 to 17. Patriots plus seven, that cashes easily. There's a lot of stuff that comes out of this game that is cool to talk about and makes you think. The first thing that comes to mind is just. I watched the Patriots game plan and I've watched it for my life. The duration of Belichick and McDaniels being there. And I'm always astounded that they are the only team that can consistently incorporate trick plays into every single game plan. That always work because these teams that are playing New England that know a trick play or two is going to be there, they're consistently befuddled by it. And they run two in this game and both are successful. The most notable one on their... Last go-ahead drive when Jacoby Myers catches a toss from Damian Harris, who has gotten a he's gotten a handoff and he tosses it back to Jacoby Myers. He hits a receiver down the sideline as Chris Collinsworth is going. A lot of people don't know that Jacoby Myers was a quarterback in college. And I'm going, everybody knows. Literally everybody knows that. And everybody knows that the Patriots draft players just like that, like they did with Julian Edelman, because they love incorporating stuff like that into their game plan. They're the only team that takes advantage of this when it comes to maximizing edges. They go, you know what would probably benefit our offense and really keep the defense on their toes? Running trick plays. That even if we don't run them successfully, it forces them throughout the game to think for even a fraction of a second longer. Because they go, can I really run up and tackle that tailback? Or is that actually a flea flicker? I don't get how everybody can't do this. I really don't. It's one of the things that New England does over and over. I've talked about other things, whether it's, you know, teaching players in practice to not reach for the goal line and thus not risk fumbling into the end zone and having a turnover. There's just simple things that exist there that they do and not a lot of other teams do. This is one of them. So I already have that envy built up in me. Actually, I bet Patriots, so I'm rooting for them. But I, every time they run a trick play, I have that bubble up and I go, oh, why can't teams that I root for do this? There's the weird call. I don't know what's going on with Chris Collinsworth, but he, he lost himself with Matt Jones's GPA. He's talking about it constantly throughout the game. I couldn't concentrate for part of it because Matt Jones would throw a two-yard check down for four yards. And Chris Collinsworth had touched himself to this 4.0 GPA that occurred six years ago in high school. I don't know what, I don't know who references GPA at this point in time. I haven't heard about it since I left high school. Apparently it's still a thing. That's going on. And then this game, which is played in a downpour, especially at the end, tight, hard fought, a lot of margin stuff factoring in. There's uh, an incredible amount of swing plays in the stretch of this one. That ultimately end in a Buccaneers two-point win. There's pass interference calls both ways. That's happening. Crazy one down the sideline to Leonard Fournette that sets up Tampa's go-ahead score. 
New England gets one on the following drive, helping them move down. There's a missed false start on New England's potential go-ahead drive at the very end where their left tackle clearly flinches and the refs just... The refs who are literally looking right at it just decide not to call. I don't know how to make sense of anything a referee does. I really don't. And yet they play an incredible role in the outcome of games. Antonio Brown, he has two chances to score a touchdown for the Buccaneers on their go-ahead drive, which ends in a field goal. But he has on their second and third down play. The first one, he kind of loses it in the rain or the light. I don't know what, but it looks like a great throw from Brady, and he just doesn't see where it is. That could have been a touchdown. Very next play, they go right back to the well, the exact same play, exact same route. Brady puts it right on the number, and Brown drops it in the corner of the end zone. Tough catch in rain. Yeah, granted, I'm not getting on his case about it, but it still could have been a touchdown for Tampa Bay. Could have forced the Patriots' hands to, if that was a touchdown instead of a field goal, they're having to maybe go for it on fourth downs if they arise. Oh, wait, maybe a fourth down does arise. On the following possession, New England's final of the night, they drive down. Their fringe field goal range, it's a third and four. If they don't get it, it'd be a 56-yard field goal. Mac Jones pass batted down. It's fourth and four. It's a 56-yard field goal. Nick Folk is their kicker who all night long, Chris Collinsworth has taken a, a deep breath to stop talking about the GPA for just one sliver of a second. To mention Nick Folk, he's got an injury. It's hard for him to plant. His plant leg might be an issue. And so now you have a choice. You're down by two points. There's a minute to go. Tampa has two timeouts. And Belichick can either attempt a 56-yard field goal with a kicker on a bum plant leg in a torrential downpour. Or he can go for it on fourth down. Again, if Tampa had scored a touchdown, his hand would have been forced. He's going for it regardless. you got to be more aggressive. You have to score a touchdown. Instead, if we kick a field goal, we're up one. However, if we're trying to weigh the pros and cons of this situation... Tom Brady is coming out on the other side of the field. There's still a minute left. They still have two timeouts. Do we want to go for this, increase the likelihood we could make the field goal, and ensure that if we get the first down, we can run the clock down to nothing and kick a field goal that will decide who wins or who loses. If it misses, we lost. But if we make it, we know for a fact we have won right then, right there. Every single probability model, they're tweeting stuff out, whether it's, you know... ESPN stats and info or next generation stats or all that kind of stuff. There's a million different ones, but they're all saying, eh, there's a large percentage gap between the decision to kick in this situation on the negative side and going for it on the positive side because of all the reasons I just described. Belichick, the best coach of all time. I will never debate that. He decides to choose the thing that statistical models say you probably shouldn't do in this moment. He sends out Nick Folk on a bum leg to attempt a 56-yard field goal in a torrential downpour. And how does it all end, ladies and gentlemen? How does it all end? Because the circular nature of the universe exists. It ends with that 56-yarder. Good-looking kick to Folk's credit. Has a lot of leg on it. It's going straight at the left upright, much like that Miami-Virginia game on Thursday night. Doink, right off the upright, in or out, it's out. The game is over. We have a perfect just bow tie on this entire discussion. Patriots go down, and the margins 
of who wins and who loses these games. They are just absolutely nothing. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel at CEO.com.